This podcast takes you into the rarely discussed realm of the personal decisions leaders have taken that have influenced their business decisions and developed them into the leaders they are today. The refreshingly honest experiences of those who have been very successful provide an insight into the challenges they faced, the successes they achieved, and the people who influenced them along their journey. Here's our host, Mark Silvera. Welcome to Business Made Personal. This podcast is brought to you by the insurance industry's leading education and events provider, ANZIF, via their Careers in Insurance initiative. I'm Mark Silvera. With a background spanning three decades, Anita Lane co-founded Solution Underwriting in Melbourne in 2010. That business is independently owned, and I'm pleased to say I have Anita here with me today. Welcome to Business Made Personal, Anita. Thank you, Mark. Hey, Anita, let's, we were talking offline just a little bit about how you got to Australia, which I found fascinating. So like my parents, your parents were migrants to the country. What do you remember of those days? Yeah, I was born in Montevideo in Uruguay, and during that time there was a series of economic crisis and political repression in the late 60s, early 70s, which made Uruguay a challenging place to live and raise a family. And my parents, and my father in particular, happened to see an advertisement in the lunchroom where he was working asking for migrants to come to Australia. And in the first case, my dad didn't even know where Australia was. Like he actually read it as being Austria and thinking, no, Austria is not for us. It's too cold. And yeah, we came to Australia in the 1970s, uh, 74. We turned up in the middle of the night into the migrant village here in Western Melbourne, um, which was a community where all migrants came initially. It was my mother, my father and my eldest sister turned up in the middle of the night and I remember just seeing a pile of overalls and clothes and boots. And the very next day, uh, all the men that arrived uh, were collected, put onto a bus and uh, taken out to Pacific Dunlop, which is where they've spent and made tyres for 12 hours a day. It was a time where, you know, blue-collar workers is really what uh, this country needed. And my family just saw the, uh, the opportunity to be able to come to a new country. Um, we stayed in the migrant village for six months. And you were then pretty much pushed out for the next lot of migrants that came in. <laughs> it was a tough time. Yeah, yeah. So how old were you at the time? I was four. Small but young enough to remember uh, the diversity and the change and life-changing moments, yeah. So you would have spoken to your parents about those days. What Do you know what they found the most challenging? Was it the language? Was it the culture? Was it the environment? What were the things that really sort of impacted them? Everything. Um, language was one. Imagine being in your 30s and not speaking English at all and being um, asked to assimilate into a community and a culture. Like I said, there was a different range and variety of migrants during that time. It was sort of post the heavy migration of, of Greeks and Italians. There weren't that many Latinos that came in during that time. So we were mixed in with, uh, with other cultures. There was a big Turkish community at that time as well, a Maltese community. So it didn't matter, they didn't, unless they spoke English or Spanish, my parents didn't really understand anyway. So even though we were all mixed together at the village, it was just a, a really tough time. Yeah, Australia is very different culturally than it is to, to South America. So I think that was really their biggest challenge. So just thinking about your, so they move out of the migrant accommodation, they go and find other accommodation. You then go to school in Australia. What sort of, did you face any specific challenges that you recall, you know, during primary and secondary school? Yeah, we were different. 
every you know you just want to be the same as everybody else and of course we weren't we looked different we sounded different we ate differently we just looked and stood out so much so those early years again as most migrants say that you do sort of um, stand out and you trying to constantly just be the normal kid in the playground and, and you're just not and I think kids these days really celebrate being different and diverse and, and love it but when I was young you didn't you just wanted to be the same as everybody else and whilst I celebrate my diversity now um, as a child it was just all about survival really and just trying to, to not stand out so it was tough we were but we were still very poor we lived in housing commissions my whole life as well even though we came to Australia for a better life during that time it still was a very difficult time for my parents they probably didn't actually integrate as well as they had hoped to do they found the, the language a big barrier they found being away from family very difficult as well so life for my sister and I at school, we kind of had each other's back, but it was quite challenging during those times. I hear you. All I wanted to do was take take a, a Vegemite sandwich to school and that was never happening at my place, I can tell you. Never. My kids now have avocado and croissants and a whole range of different things and different meats and you just think, oh my goodness, it is a different time. <laughs> do you think that impacted your future views on what you needed to do to, in inverted commas, be successful in Australia? Definitely. It just, it's that survival instinct that just kicks in. It's that idea that you want to succeed. I think we understood clearly that my parents did come for a better life and it was about that next generation, that that migration step needed to be and realised with um, myself and my siblings. And it did drive me in the early years. I wanted to my parents to be proud of what we had achieved and what we set out to do when we came to Australia. There is always that pressure of it. And I was lucky that I loved school. I just enjoyed going to school. I liked learning. It was sort of um, different to my home life and it was a little bit of an escape and just going to school was just, you know, my happy place. And therefore, I became a very active learner and really enjoyed just being around you know, people with different ideas and, and exploring. That was pretty much how I enjoyed going to school and just interacting. Yeah, see, when you put the word school and happy place in the same sentence, it does, just doesn't work for me, I've got to tell you. I wanted to ask you about that time. So as you grew up, were there people that were in your life that were major influences for you and shaped you know, your sort of younger years? Well, it was just my parents. The four of us just migrated, so I didn't grow up with grandparents or cousins or aunts and uncles. But I watched my parents just uh, struggle every day and just try and build a life for them here, uh, for themselves here. And I admired that. I just thought that they uh, were just so brave and that they really went out of their comfort zone just to see a future and just live the best life that they could. And uh, I guess they were pretty much my inspiration just to make life better for not only myself, but for them as well. Um, and I've been lucky enough to be able to do that. Do you think they were happy? They were happy. My parents were the happiest people. Like I said, we were poor, but we didn't even know we were poor until I was a lot older, really. And you do look around and you think, ah. Maybe we were a little bit poor because they were so rich and, and with their culture and what they wanted to live and they didn't matter. Um, my dad was a waiter in Ligon Street for almost 40 years and uh, he, he loved it. He worked very long shifts and it was a tough time, but he was a very happy man. They had their food, they had their music, they had their family and there is quite a big 
Hispanic community here in Melbourne now. So over the years, they were able to make connections that way. But yeah, they were happy. Like you said, Montevideo was a very difficult time before they left. And then they were able to make a new life for themselves here, which was good. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely sensational. So let's fast forward a little bit. What sort of prompted you to look at insurance as your sort of chosen career? I actually uh, couldn't afford to go to university, so I had to do it part-time. So as soon as I finished high school, I went and got a job and I started my degree. I've got a Bachelor of Business as an undergraduate doing it night school for six years. And my very, I just got any job that I could and it happened to be in local council in the city, Melbourne. And I was the junior in the finance team and I happened to have a role that meant that I had to look, make sure that council actually got their insurance proposal forms into their broker on time. Not fill them in, not do anything fancy, just make sure that everybody got their forms in on time. And the broker at that time was uh, Willis Caroon, they were called, um, back in the day. And uh, the council that I worked for had a terrible tree planting program and they were inner city and they actually planted all the wrong trees in all the streets and, of course, led to a lot of damage to people's properties. And I ended up having to go around uh, as now the the appointed insurance person at council, taking photos of uh, people's front rooms that were damaged by these roots that had gone through underneath and looking for water. And so I had a lot to do with the broker, a wonderful man called um, uh, Stephen Smith, who was my broker at that time. And I had so much to do with him. He said to me one day, do you want to come on this side? Would you like to come and work as a broker on insurance? And I was so young, I just said yes. <laughs> and, and that was it. <laughs> I was then interviewed by Michael Prickett, which was, uh, it was a great mentor to me. And I was immediately in the PI team as a junior broker in Collins Street, which I loved. And that's how I got into it. Uh, someone just said, would you like to get into insurance? And my answer was yes. And I've never looked back from there. <laughs> Well, I do know both those gentlemen and both of them are very, very good operators, so you were certainly in good hands. Yes. So you worked at Lloyd's in 1997 as a box girl. I don't think we can use that term anymore, but at that time, that's what it was called. What were the challenges that you faced, do you think, Anita, being young, being female and in a, let's call it a fairly male-dominated environment? Yeah, you can't call them box girls anymore. But the truth is, um, you know, we were girls and we worked at a box. I thought it was a perfect name, right? Box girls is just what it was. And we didn't take ourselves that seriously back then. No one was offended by the term. It just sort of, you know, it was just the terminology that it was used in the Lloyd's market. And if you actually know the intricacies of how a Lloyd's syndicate works, you know that box girls actually ran the show. So it was actually uh, a really incredibly great time to work there. We were influential. We could uh, we had uh, access to brokers and then we could give brokers access to our underwriters if we wanted to. We really ran the syndicate day to day. So yes, I was young. Yes, I was a female. We were called box girls. It was just a role that we we had and it was a fun time. I really did have a good time. I loved my time at the box. I learned a lot. And I think being young and female was actually quite empowering because we know we had a role to play and we executed it the way that we needed to for the syndicate along the way. The only real challenge, I guess, I worked in Lloyd's at a time when uh, if you needed to go to the ladies' toilets, it was kind of a bit of a, you had to allow a good 15-minute time to do it because literally there was not enough female, there was not many female toilets 
in Lloyd's building itself. We never dared to actually go to the toilet during box hours because we were we were working. But if you needed to, it really was where I sat on a different floor in a different corner of the building and uh, just because there wasn't even enough female toilets in the building itself. So that was always interesting. But again, we didn't take ourselves too seriously. We just planned our day and we just got on with it, which was quite a lot of fun. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I'd like to ask you about how you see things in Australia, not just from a female perspective, but from a diversity and inclusion perspective, and also from a management perspective, because you're basically running a a sizable operation these days. What do you think the challenges are for people who are diverse or people, you know, who are not basically male? Do you see as the challenges in Australia? Yeah, that is still challenging. I still walk into a room and, um, you know, I'm always the minority because I am female, because uh, I am a migrant. I tick a lot of those diversity boxes just by going into a room these days, Mark. And, but I love that. And I don't think it should be an obstacle. And it's never been a disadvantage or, or, or anything different for me. You know, again, it's this whole thing about standing out. If I am the only female in the room, that I find that quite empowering. And it's always been good that I've been fortunate to have a seat at the table. Particularly at Solution, we try to uh, have as a diverse group and we're lucky to, to do that. I guess I just focus all the time on getting the right people in the right jobs, despite whether that's male or female or what diverse, you know, the diversity box they might tick. And that has worked for us. I mean, our leadership team is 40% female. Again, I think that's really empowering for any organisation just to have that diversity of thought at the table. It hasn't been uh, that journey for me. I've been very fortunate that I think being a female in the industry has actually been, uh, has worked for me. I, I don't look like everybody else. I don't sound like everybody else at the table. And I've just used that to be able to, to dictate my career in the way that I've wanted it to go. There's a lot to be said for having a differentiated value proposition, right? Because people do remember you and especially if you're confident in what you've been able to do or what you're capable of doing, I think that makes all the difference. But again, I'm also self-employed, so I can drive that. I know what that looks like and that's been, uh, I guess, the game changer for me as well. We uh, definitely get to influence how the, our landscape looks like, definitely at Solution and who we employ and, and what roles we have there. But, I mean, you are right. Uh, last week I had a group of young graduates come through and we spent a day with them showing them um, how we underwrite and what an underwriting agency is and where we sit in the market. And, and as they all came through, I watched them one by one and, yes, they were young. But they're all males, right? And it did occur to me that if we're talking about, and I know that you're very passionate about this, about getting that mix of male and females in our industry, even starting at that root ground level, just to see these groups, they were all, it wasn't lost on me that they were all white males uh, that came through. So I don't know whether we actually are going in the right direction, but certainly in my experience, I think women have made a tremendously powerful impact in how the market operates. Yeah, look, I've certainly heard the comment that, you know, if a man thinks that he can do seven out of the 10 things, he'll have a crack at it. And if a woman thinks she can do nine out of the 10 things, she still won't, which I found interesting. I want to talk, speaking about differentiated value propositions, I wanted to talk about the fact that in a Canopy video, you mentioned that your biggest skill was your ability to read the room. Anita, how has that helped you in your career, do you think? 
I think knowing and understanding your audience and what they need to hear is a valuable skill set. Depending on the motivation of each stakeholder, every meeting, every pitch requires a message to be delivered and heard in a specific way. So walking into a room and seeing, uh, even just looking at people's body language, what they're interested when you start talking. I have to say how I speak to a broker is very different to how I communicate with my security partners claims team, underwriters, or even our own staff at Solution. Understanding their motivation helps me sort of deliver that message more effectively. I have walked into many rooms thinking I'm going to deliver a certain message. And then I look around and I see that, you know, maybe people really aren't interested in that, right? And it's these days, it's probably three main things that people like me to talk about. One, the insurance. I love talking about insurance. I can do it all day, every day. I love to, I love the detail. I am an insurance person through and through. Sometimes I just want to hear about the market and where we are from uh, just the insurance. These days, people want to talk about uh, the work that we're doing with people and culture at Solution. That's always a bit interesting as well. And then sometimes people just want to hear the solution story, how Reese and I set it up. We left our, our well-paying jobs. We remortgaged our home. We set up an agency from scratch. We had no business, one binder, two people. And so sometimes I walk in and I, and I think I'm going to talk about insurance and I'm ready to go for it. And then I realise that people start asking me questions, again, about my team um, and how we've been able to grow solution as a startup to where it is now. And sometimes people just want to hear the story and uh, and I love telling the story. And if that's what they want to hear, reading a room means that I can deliver my message in a more effective way. So I love a good story. So why did you start Solution Underwriting, Anita, given that you were employed? Yeah, crazy, right? We just wanted to have a crack, Mark. We just wanted to, uh, I have been 20 years uh, next year, Reese and I have known each other and worked together. And we have an incredible understanding of each other's skills and what we do and what we wanted to achieve. We trust each other. We uh, we knew that it was something that if we were ever going to do it, it was going to be at the time that we, we did it uh, 13 years ago. People talk about people being entrepreneurial and stuff. I'm not sure we're actually entrepreneurial. All we wanted to do was just have the opportunity to be able to have just, yeah, just to have a crack at it and just see whether we could do it a little bit different and see whether we could take that risk and back ourselves to be able just to start something that was not unique. We came into the market where it was highly saturated, offering a miscellaneous PI product, right? No one's ever thought of that before. Yet, we still thought that we could do it a little bit different. We wanted to focus in an area that we thought that was a little bit overlooked and not loved as much as it should be. We understood what it took to be able to build a portfolio and yeah we just wanted to just to do it and we did <laughs> it's interesting isn't it because one of the things that you've also said over your insurance career that you've learned what not to do as much as what to do so was that part of that journey as well yeah i think the power of um observational behavior is very important especially when you're young. I learned so much when I was younger and I was exposed to so many things and I was very lucky that people would take me to meetings and I most of the time didn't say anything, but I would just watch and I was a sponge and I'm naturally a very curious person and I would just see the more experienced um, underwriters and I would hear what they would say and I just watch how they behaved in a professional setting. And I, I do believe that you don't always have to make the same mistakes yourself. I mean, you can learn from others. 
And it's probably what worries me a little bit about this work from home culture at the moment, where I think some of the young ones are losing that opportunity to watch more experienced operators and their peers on how they respond, how they behave, how they manage tricky situations. I was very lucky to be, uh, like I said, have a seat at the table just to watch how other people performed. And I think it Again, another skill set that's lost. You don't always have to be the smartest person in the room. You don't always have the right answer. You can actually learn by observing other people's behaviour. Someone once told me that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. I wanted to ask you about, so in the insurance business, an article in 2023, you said, and I quote, I come from a generation that feared feedback because we always thought it would be negative or critical. We were too scared to put a hand up and contribute to the conversation. What steps have you taken, Anita, to get you past that feeling? I learned to change the narrative, not just in my mind, but in my leadership team at Solution as well. Yeah, I just needed to to move away that feedback isn't always negative. And when delivered correctly, feedback is an incredibly powerful tool and a great way to build rapport and trust in your team. So I had to change my mindset because we always thought that if you were given feedback, it was you always just thought it was going to be negative, and it's not. Uh, feedback can be incredibly powerful as well. I mean, I can't encourage every leader or manager to be generous with their feedback as well to their staff, whether it's good or it's bad. People need to know. I, I have this saying that you don't know what you don't know, and you, you could have a team full of people that just going on their little merry way and they don't know that they're not quite nailing it. And if you were generous with your feedback and you weren't scared to actually speak up and give them, it's actually very kind, you know. And I always say, always remember to be kind when you're giving feedback because that is a choice. And be careful with the language that you use. And if it's personal and spiteful and critical as such, then don't say it. That's not going to help anybody. But if it's genuine and you think it's actually going to help someone improve and help them navigate their way to the next stage of their careers, then share it and don't be afraid. It will actually help them develop. So be kind and, yeah, just change that narrative in your own mind that feedback is always negative and it's not the case. Just be careful with your words, that's all. It depends where it's coming from, doesn't it? If it's coming from a place of wanting to help you, it's very different to coming from a place where it's trying to rip you down. I wanted to ask you, what would be the hardest piece of feedback you've received, Anita, where you've gone, oh, that stings, and then you've thought about it and you've gone, yeah, I get it. This is what I've got to change. I just, I want everything. I can see it. I have tremendous clarity in my head in terms of where things need to get to and where they need to be. And A to B is very clear for me once I've decided. Sometimes uh, I have to get other people on board <laughs> and having that patience to be able to to work with others and collaborate a little more. I'm a little bit just like I've decided this is what we're doing and off we go and because I'm, I'm sure and I trust myself and I know what needs to be done. The feedback I've had is that I need to calm down sometimes, be a bit more patient and bring others along the journey with me. And it's true because maybe at the beginning, um, you know, we have a big team of people now and I can't just do it all on my own. And and like I said, I have a leadership team and a whole range of different uh, people at Solution now, and they all need to come on this journey with me as well. So I need to sometimes stop and uh, think about it from other people's perspective as well. <laughs> and, and I guess that sort of leads me to the next question in terms of challenges. 
What would you say is the hardest challenge uh, you've had to overcome in your life? Well, uh, managing stereotypes my whole life, I think, has been the most challenging thing. Like I said, I, I grew up in a very traditional Hispanic way as well here in, in Melbourne. And amongst my peers, I got to a point where I actually wasn't Hispanic enough. <laughs> like I wasn't like, like it was just a bit weird. Like I, I whilst I am fluent in Spanish and we did grow up in a very traditional way, like I said, my parents were very strict and we tried to keep all our cultures that we could hear. But the way my life sort of went and going to uni and, and living a different life and then travelling abroad, Aussie, but then, of course, my Australian friends don't see me that way at all. So, yeah, the, the challenge has always been to find the right place for me. I kind of never felt like I fitted in anywhere in particular, but that I'm okay with that now. I kind of feel like I fit in more, I can fit in more than one place, uh, which, again, is a bit of fun for me because I get to be, I get to live a very interesting life because of that. It's funny you mention that because I experienced exactly the same phenomenon, right? And I thought, okay, and I was going back to India for a holiday and I thought, okay, let me see if I fit in here. I felt more isolated there than I ever felt in Australia. I just found that absolutely fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about your, got a high profile in the insurance industry. You've done a fair bit of work over 30 years. Do you think having that sort of business exposure has changed you? Absolutely. I think 100%. The day that we set up Solution as a true startup back in the day in 2010, everything changed. It had to. I had two young children at home. I resigned from my well-paying job that was stable, that I'd been there for a very long time. I had to change. There was sort of no option from there. Arise and I went from being underwriters and employees in an organisation where we got our paychecks every fortnight and we turned up every day and we had sick leave and we had everything to business owners overnight. It just changes your DNA, I think, when you need to build and grow a business with no safety net. We used to always say there is no plan B, right? This is going to work. There is no other option where this is going to work. And you start to behave in a different way. You start to uh, transact in a different way. Your language changes, your, your level of responsibility changes as well. When you're responsible for so many people and their livelihoods and their families, life is never the same. And whilst, you know, you learn the true meaning of being intuitive and resilient, it's probably the two things that I've learned to really rely on. It's the scariest thing and yet the most exciting thing I've ever done in my life. But it did, it does change you. It has to change you because you you are building a business. You are looking at after other people. It's not just about clocking on and clocking off every day and having a holiday in between. We didn't have holidays for years uh, at the beginning and we just couldn't. So it does change you personally, I think. And I wanted to ask a little bit about, you know, starting a business because often people have to give something up. Being a mum of two young children, do you feel that there had to be some sort of compromises that you had to make along the way? Yes and no. Of course, life was busy and challenging there. 
I really believe that if you surround yourself with the right people and the people who understand you and know what you're capable of doing, and that's what I had with Reese. He knew what I could do. I just needed that little bit of flexibility because I, the kids were so little at that time and, and I didn't want to be stuck at a desk in an office. So we set up the business from day one, 13 years ago, to be 100% paperless. And that gave me the flexibility that I needed. People always ask women about the balancing act. Can you have it all, right? No one ever asks a man that. And I've been asked this question so many times. How do I balance it? How do I, can I have it all? And the answer is that you can balance it. You can do it. You need to know your own limitations. I'm very good at saying I can't, I'm done, or I need help, or and bringing people into my inner circle. And I've had tremendous support over the years. It's the whole idea of it takes a village and it has to build the business and to raise my children and to live the life that I've had along the way as well. So you mentioned the Balancing Act and you're an advocate for both the Balancing Act and the Four Burners. What is it, please, Anita? Yeah, I came across, it's not my idea, but I came across this management tool a few years ago and it just really resonated with me again about this Balancing Act. And what you have to imagine is that it's a four-burner stove and the burners in your life, and they can be whatever they are to you. For me, it was work, family, health, and friends, right? Probably the the four main areas of my life that really mattered to me. And the idea is that you can't have, imagine the gas going on all four cylinders of those four areas of my life full on all the time. If you have them going at high, you will just burn out, right? It just, that is not achievable. You can't be, you know, at home with your children, at work at the same time, at the gym and, you know, out having a few cocked margaritas with your girlfriends, right? It just doesn't happen. So the idea of the four burner is that you can actually regulate at what you want to focus on at any given time. So for example, if you have a deadline at work or it's the 30th of June and you know that work is really going to require a lot of your attention and time and energy, you will turn down some of the other burners so that you can turn up your work burner at that at that time. If you have a sick family member, my father passed this year and that was a time where this system really worked for me. I had to turn down my my work um, burner and everything else in my life just to be with my father. And again, it's about communicating to the other parts of your life why you need to turn them down a little bit, not turn them off. They can still be there. It's not about on or off. It's about just understanding that you can't work and operate at that high level uh, all the time. And the beauty as a mum for me was that I got to choose and my burners could actually change throughout the day, right? I could have gotten up, taken the kids to school, gone to work and then got a phone call during the day that I needed to go and pick someone up from school in the middle of the day because they'd fallen off the monkey bars or something. So again, I would have to turn my work burner down, go home and um, do what I need to do. And throughout my life, and like I said, on a daily basis, I get to choose which part of the, which burner I turn up and which I actually turn down just so that I can keep everything balanced. Yeah, yeah, and that makes sense, right? Because people think work-life balance is 50-50, but it, sometimes it can't be. Sometimes you've got to do more work and sometimes you've got to do more life. Exactly. I want to ask you about your job. What would you say is the most challenging part of what you do? The people. Uh, I'm a people person. <laughs> The dynamics of our market, the relationships, 
the trust and the bonds that we make as we navigate our way through our roles in our market is the, is the best part for me. You know, I like I said, I love people, what makes them tick, what makes them think, how they respond. It's never personal, right? It's just business at the end of the day. And yet we've all made really strong bonds and relationships along the way. There's with brokers and underwriters and so many elements of our business. Um, we have a really uh, you know, vibrant and dynamic team at Solution and they challenge me every day. And I love that. That is what I love about my role the most. I wanted to ask you too, in terms of your career, what's the biggest challenge that you faced? My The answer to the last question was the people. And I have to say the most challenging part of my role is actually the people as well. It's the same answer. Keeping a team that's engaged and challenged and stimulated and high performing is not easy because they've all, they've all got different motivation and they've all got different things that drive them. They all, they're not always happy every day. Their careers are at different levels. We have an incredibly high staff retention rate at Solution, which we are very proud of. And that takes a lot of energy to be able to make sure that our underwriters are thriving, that they're learning, that they're developing, that they understand the market and they know how where we operate in there as well. So whilst the people are my favourite part of my job, I would also say that they're also the most challenging part of what we do at Solution, considering that we are a knowledge-based organisation. We don't make anything. You know, we have to make sure that our people are thriving and they're engaged every single day. We've got a couple of final questions before I let you go. The first one for you, Anita Lane. If you were able to go back to that young lady working at Lloyd's in the UK, what advice would you give her? I'd say just go for it, girl. You know, it's just the thing that, and I did, I absolutely did, but it wasn't easy. Again, you've got to overcome stereotypes and you have to be patient, you have to be tolerant, you have to be brave. I would say just keep that curiosity going, you know, and just be respectful as I always have been. It has been an absolute joy to, to work alongside so many talented people. But yeah, just go for it. Just be brave and just move forward and just do what you knew intuitively had to be done at that time. There's also going to be people listening to this podcast going, you know what, I have thought about starting on my own. I would like to at some point in time. What would you say they need to do to prepare for something like that, Anita? Good question, Mark. Uh, it is. I don't know whether you're ever ready because <laughs> at some point you're going to have to make the jump, right? We talk about the time where we're in free fall. So the minute you resign uh, and it, it's sort of out there and depending on where your situation is, there's sort of no going back. You just need to be brave, back yourself, trust yourself, know your business plan, know what you're going to, how you're going to differentiate yourself, know your numbers. I think people don't realise how important it is to know your numbers and know where your demographic is and how you're going to um, set yourself apart from the competitors in the market. And then just go for it. Don't wait. Don't wait for things to be perfect. Don't wait for anything to be perfect because it's never going to be. You have to back yourself and feel that intuition and that gut feeling that we talk about is also about knowing when to make that break. And then once you've done it, 
like like Reese and I said, there is no plan B, right? Don't don't say, well, if it doesn't work, I'll go back and do something else. Of course, you can always do that. Our market is incredibly forgiving and um, there's so many opportunities. But if you're going to really do it, just back yourself 100% and do everything in your power to be able to just get it and be patient. It takes a long time to build momentum. At the beginning, when we first started, whilst Reese and I had strong brands in the market people would say I know you and I know you for both of us but I don't know what this round blue circle means to us the brand didn't have a, a, a meaning at that time we had to work really hard to create the brand and make sure that people trusted it and understood what it represented even though we'd already had um, some success in our previous roles and people knew who we were. We needed to translate that across to who the brand was and what that represented. And that takes time. Um, so don't cheat yourself, just give it everything. <laughs> hey, one of the things I'm starting in this podcast and I'll continue on in others is to ask you to leave a question for my next guest, uh, whoever that might be. And I'll ask you that in a minute. But before we go to that one, what's next for Anita Lane? Well, I love what I do. And so I, I'm okay with more of the same. I started, uh, I'm just about to finish my last subject on my MBA, which I started in my 50s, which was crazy again. Um, but I've really enjoyed it. It's been the hardest thing I've ever done. And again, the most stimulating and uh that I have enjoyed doing it. I didn't think I would ever say this, but I'm quite sad that it's nearly over. I've got one more subject. So I finished that uh, by the end of the year. Yeah, just more of the same. Um, we still have a thriving business and there's so many opportunities. The market is just about to turn again. We need to be ready for that. And there's a lot of insurance to do. <laughs> so let me finish off by asking you, what question would you like me to ask the next guest that appears on this show? We always talk about change in our industry, and I guess I do like that question, and you've asked this before, so I'm going to ask it as well. But, yeah, what would the next person like to see change in our industry in the next sort of five to ten years? And change is hard. What would they like to see change in the next short while is always a good question. I will ask that the next one I get. Thank you so much, Anita Lane, for being on Business Made Personal. Thank you. Thank you so much for lending us your ears. Please remember to click follow on your podcast app or subscribe at bmppodcast.com.au so we can give you a sneak peek of our next guest. Until next time, I'm Mark Silvera and you've been listening to Business Made Personal.